Well, good morning, Renewal Church family, and good morning to any of you who might be visiting us virtually for the first time. As was stated during the announcements, I want to encourage you, if you're able to, please do visit our website, and under I'm New, you're going to find ways to connect with us, even through a limited time like this. Well, last week, we just started a new teaching series or sermon series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so if you missed last week, if you're able to, I just want to encourage you, uh, even if you can't listen to the whole thing, uh, if you go to the 29-minute mark of, of last week's uh, Sunday worship video, uh, there I begin to explain the background uh, of the book of Ecclesiastes. And you might find that helpful to just get your bearings and, and to bring further understanding as we set, to, set out to study this book together. Uh, but in short, as a reminder, the book of Ecclesiastes is written from the perspective of a great king. And there is some debate on who this king exactly was, but personally, I, along with many others, believe it was Solomon. And so as he reflects on his literal wealth, uh, it, he was the richest man in the known world in his day. As he reflects upon his literal wealth, but also his his wealth of experiences, all that he had gone through in life, he then seeks to share all that he's learned, to share the wisdom he's gleaned concerning lessons on life. And he wants to share those lessons with the people of God, which is why he refers to himself as the preacher, one who shares God's wisdom and teaches the gathered people of God. More specifically, what's he teaching about? He's inviting those who are listening to consider the biggest questions in life. And of course, the biggest one of them all being, what is the meaning of life? Is there a purpose in everything that we're experiencing and going through? And the conclusions that he comes to, they arise directly out of his own life, out of his own experiences, his own journey to find those answers, to find those answers as one who is trying to find those answers apart from God, in fact. He shares from that perspective, in other words, an unbelieving perspective, trying to answer the biggest questions of life, but assuming God doesn't exist, or if he does exist, that he's not really involved or in any personal way connected to what's happening all around us. And so he shares from that perspective, as we described last week, we called it the under the sun perspective. That phrase keeps coming up, under the sun, under the sun. And so he shares from this perspective of life under the sun, meaning life from only a human perspective or an unbelieving perspective. And the conclusions that he arrives at from that perspective are meant to leave us unsatisfied are meant to leave us discontent in order that it might drive us into the arms of the only one in whom we find true meaning and true contentment for our souls, the very arms of God. And so we are going to pick up where we left off last week. And so after seeking to find answers to the meaning of life, with his own mind, with his own intellect, by human reasoning alone, 
he describes how he ended up still at a dead end. It's like he entered a maze with no center. He entered a maze with no finish line, as it were. And in fact, he says, the deeper I looked, the more I turned the rocks over and peeled the covers back, the more depressed I got. He was left completely unsatisfied. Last year, I came across a Wall Street Journal op-ed piece, and it was aimed at parents entitled, Don't Believe in God? Lie to your children. Don't believe in God? Lie to your children. And it was based uh, out of a study and reflections on a study conducted in 2018 um, where Harvard researchers examined the religious involvement amongst a, a data set of about 5,000 people uh, with various controls, taking into account socio-demographic characteristics, maternal health. So they took these factors into account in their research. But here's the conclusion they came to. Children and teens who uh, attended a religious service at least once a week scored higher on psychological well-being measurements and had lower risks for mental illness. Weekly attendance was associated with higher rates of volunteering, a sense of mission, forgiveness, and lower probabilities of drug use and early sexual initiation. And so here's what the author in this op-ed piece writes. Nihilism, or the belief that there is no ultimate overarching meaning, nihilism is fertilizer for anxiety and depression. And being realistic is overrated. The belief in God, in a protective and guiding figure to rely on when times are tough, is one of the best kinds of support for kids in an increasingly pessimistic world. That's only one reason, from a purely mental health perspective, to pass down a faith tradition. I am often asked by parents, how do I talk to my child about death if I don't believe in God or heaven? My answer is always the same. Lie. The idea that you simply die and turn to dust may work for some adults, but it doesn't help children. Perhaps the results of this study are what they are because in fact God is true the gospel is true God is alive that we were made for him to know him and to be known by him and so to try to seek answers without him to try to find meaning and purpose apart from him is a dead-end road and not only a dead-end road an incredibly depressing one because we weren't meant to, nor can we find meaning apart from him. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes came to the same conclusion out of his own lived research. Seeking meaning apart from God ultimately falls short. It is deeply unsatisfying. And so as a result of running into that dead end in his pursuit through secular philosophy, he turns to a new pursuit. The pursuit of pleasure, which we will study in depth under these three headings. The pursuit, the roads taken, and third and last, coming home. So we'll look at his pursuit, the roads taken, and then finally coming home.
So first of all, the pursuit. Chapter 2, verse 1. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. That word test conveys that what he's about to undertake is like an experiment. You see, some people learn lessons about life because they simply stumble into things. Right? They just go through it and then they look back and they learn lessons. But the preacher, he describes how he was very deliberative, intentional in his pursuit of pleasure. He set out with, with that mind that said, I want to see if experiencing all that life has to offer actually fills me up. Maybe, maybe that's the answer. Right? Maybe that's the answer. Maybe that will leave me content and satisfied, and that will be enough. I imagine many teenagers, as I once did, are itching to leave home. They're longing to leave home so that they can explore the world and see all that the world has to offer, wondering whether the rules that they grew up with, the religion that they grew up with, is actually holding them back in some way. That perhaps maybe their parents, their church, whatever community they're from, is, is holding something or even hiding something from them. And that real happiness, real contentment, is somewhere out there to, to be discovered still. Solomon was motivated in a similar way. But the difference was that he actually had the means to literally experience all that there was to experience, right? It's, it's, it's one thing for someone making minimum wage to make this statement. Money doesn't bring happiness, right? It's, someone, it's one thing for someone who's making minimum wage to say that. It would be another thing for Jeff Bezos, the CEO, owner of Amazon, to say that who's got all the money in the world, for him to say money can't bring happiness. You see, that's a whole nother thing. Solomon, as he did with philosophy, he went all in. He turned every rock over, experienced it all with a, with a scientific discipline, as it were. And he still came away concluding, but behold, this was all vanity. This also was vanity. And then he proceeds to describe his journey, which is our second point, the roads taken. He describes all the different roads he went down to pursue pleasure. Verse 2, I said of laughter, it is mad and of pleasure, what use is it? Now, laughter has its place. It's a good gift of God, as everything we're about to talk about ultimately is. And so it's not that he or God is anti-laughter, that, that we need to walk around all serious and somber. He's not anti-laughter, but in the grand scheme of things, in the context of his search for meaning, he knows that after the laughs fade, you're still left with the biggest questions unanswered. You're still left with the harsh realities of life. 
Laughter is often a coping strategy to deal with the pains and the absurdities of life. Sometimes it's, it's, a, it's purely an escape, purely a distraction to not have to think about tough things. And so you just kind of turn on Netflix, the latest comedy special, you laugh just so that you don't have to think about the hard stuff. And so sometimes laughter, it comes from that place. Just, it's just purely or a, a distraction. Or sometimes we laugh about the absurdity of life. We laugh about the frustrations and the difficult things of life. But those laughs come through tears. It's not, the laughter doesn't actually fix or solve or address any of the problems or the source of the problems we face, the source of the tears. But somehow the laugh makes it a little bit more tolerable in that moment, though it doesn't fix anything really. Think of the person who makes fun of their appearance or makes fun of their own weight to their friends, perhaps in an attempt to preempt others' comments, because making fun of yourself and pointing out your own flaws perhaps hurts a little bit less than someone else doing it for you. Last year, uh, a documentary aired entitled Laughing Matters, and it explored the relationship between comedy and depression. And it, it's, the, it's what's referred to as the sad clown paradox. The sad clown paradox. Many of the most popular comedians in our day and in history, historically, have suffered with deep depression. And that is hardly, that is not a laughing matter. So many greats have committed suicide. We can think most recently Robin Williams, a very well-known comedian who ended up taking his own life. And others have led lives that were so self-destructive that it led to their premature tragic deaths. We think of people like Chris Farley. Jim Belushi is another famous one. And so this documentary set out to explore why this is. Rain Wilson is on this documentary. And if you don't know who Rain Wilson is, he is the character on The Office named Dwight who actually made my name a laughing matter. Um, but he explains why he got into comedy. He says, I grew up a pretty anxious and depressed kid. I had a family that looked normal on the outside, but was completely dysfunctional. I was this odd, alienated child. My mom took off when I was two years old. I was raised by a stepmom and this was a petri dish for sadness. When I found out that I could make people laugh, this was my solution. Sarah Silverman, another very well-known comedian, attributes her draw towards professional comedy to her childhood instinct of leaning on laughter as a way of surviving. She says, that survival was finding a way to be funny, to diffuse a scary household or abuse. All those things feed into how I became a comedian because I needed to be funny to be liked. 
Comedians become comedians because somewhere in their childhood they needed to be funny in order to survive. The ultimate message of the documentary is that laughter and making others laugh ultimately, ultimately fails to help them where they need it most. This point is made perhaps most poignantly by a comedian named Chris Gethard who says, comedy is not going to save you. If you are thinking about doing comedy as a substitute for therapy, it doesn't work. I tried for a long time. The preacher, Solomon himself, could attest to that, that when all is said and done, when the laugh's over, when the show is over, when the friends leave the room, nothing is actually fixed. The pain remains. He continues describing various roads he traveled, right? Verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. He turns to alcohol, again, with the posture of a researcher, delving into the pleasures of alcohol, both as a connoisseur, right? Taking a deep dive as to how pleasurable wine can be. I looked up the most expensive, expensive bottle of wine today, and it's called the Screaming Eagle Cabernet, priced at unbelievably $500,000. $500,000 bottle of wine. And there are those out there who are consumed with being a wine connoisseur, willing to pay that kind of money because they find so much pleasure in wine itself. And not only did he experience alcohol as a connoisseur, he, he went the other extreme. I'm guessing as a drunk. And that's what he means by laying hold of folly, right? So not just being the, the fine connoisseur, but getting wasted, just completely losing his mind in a drunken state. And either way, it didn't do it for him. The drink filled his stomach, but his soul was still empty. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. He was DIYing ahead of all of us his home constructions, private gardens, all kinds of landscaping, and not just working on his house. He says houses, he had multiple houses, vacation homes, uh, all kinds of properties. Many right now in this season of COVID are doing the same thing, investing in their homes. According to the latest US Census Bureau, home centers, hardware stores, garden centers, and building material suppliers realized a year-over-year -year sales increase of 22.6%. Business is booming, and it's leading all other retailers um, except for online purchases. That's the only thing beating it right now. With people being at home so much, what it's done is it's highlighted discontentment.
whether about how their home looks or perhaps the size of their home or what their yard looks like. And so people want to change things up, shake things up a little bit. Solomon has been there and done that. Commentators point out there are parallels in the description. There are parallels. It reminds us, the imagery of it reminds us of, in fact, the Garden of Eden. And that this pursuit represents, in a way, an attempt to recreate Eden. To recreate a paradise of sorts for ourselves and by ourselves, with our own hands. But as Solomon would say, it doesn't work. It won't fill you up in the way that you're looking for. How many Edenic homes that most of us would die to live in or die to build, the kind of homes we would all want to live in, dreamed of having, how many of these homes are burning on the hillsides of California right now? There is no ultimate paradise to be found under the sun. There is no lasting paradise that we can create for ourselves under the sun. And yet we invest so much time, so much energy, and so much money to that end. And speaking of money, verses 7 to 8, he describes the great wealth he amassed with an army of servants. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem, silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. He had the wealth of other nations. All of it was his. I mean, you and I, you and I feel a little powerful that we can sit in our house and say, Alexa, play me a song. And we feel like we have some power at our fingertips because we're able to do that. Well, Solomon literally had people, live people, that he could say, sing me a song. It, it, it was as, it's as if Post Malone is living in his house and he says, hey, come downstairs, perform a song for me. He had that. He had that. But he says, all that wealth, luxury, proved to be vanity, a dead-end road, meaningless. Christian apologist, preacher, the late Ravi Zacharias, describes how he had dinner once with the seventh wealthiest man in the world. And he asked him, what led, what led you to inviting me to come and speak to you and your staff? Why would the seventh wealthiest man in the world want Ravi Zacharias to come? And so he asks him this. And this man's response was that a little while before that, he had called his wife from the 70th floor of one of the buildings he owned. And he basically told his wife, I'm a very lonely man. And her reply was, so am I. And so he said, what should we do about it? And she said, well, there's a church that's adjacent to one of the buildings we own. So maybe we can go there because after all, they own the parking lot. We wouldn't have to pay for parking. But he went on to tell Ravi, this man said, when he realized he could buy everything he wanted, he literally could buy everything that he wanted. 
He said, I had never reached such a lonely moment as that. When I realized I could literally buy everything I wanted, I never reached such a lonely moment as that. Coffers full of money, vault fulls of money, accounts full of money, and yet, do you hear it? So empty, so empty inside. At the end of verse eight, he said he had many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. Now again, assuming this is Solomon, 1 Kings 11.3 says, Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. This man gave himself over to the unbridled, uninhibited pursuit of sexual pleasure. He held nothing back. In, in some ways with the internet, we too are able to have access to unbridled sexual pleasure. But this too is a dead end road and it's not without consequence. <coughs> Excuse me. In her book, it's kind of a crass title, but there's a book entitled Loose Girl, A Memoir of Promiscuity. Carrie Cohen is the author. She writes about how when she was living a completely promiscuous lifestyle and the emptiness that sex with multiple men brought her. She says that she not only lost track of their names, but she began to lose track of hers too, who she was and what she was meant to be. She writes this, for a man, this might be a pleasant trip down memory lane, counting up his conquests, she writes, but for a girl, it's a whole other story. She describes how she gave of herself, wanting that to make me matter to them, wanting it to make me matter. And yet, all the unbridled running and chasing after sexual fulfillment left her, left her completely empty, completely lost. And so the preacher summarizes in verses 9 to 11. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. In other words, he's saying, again, I was deliberate. I was thoughtful concerning everything that I did. I did it as if I was conducting a scientific research experiment. And he says, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. In other words, he lived with pleasure as an, for pleasure as an end in itself, and of course, he's saying he did experience a degree of pleasure, but ultimately, ultimate his, ultimately his conclusion was, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I'd expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. The laughter that arises from a literal comedy show or just hanging out with friends, exploring mind altering drugs or alcohol or any substance, enjoying what you can with your mouth, food, wine, 
enjoying what you can with your eyes, aesthetic beauty, nature, art, indulging in desires of the flesh, unbridled sexual desires, the pleasure of accomplishments and achievements of all kind. It still left him after all was said and done with a profound emptiness. And so this, of course, begs the question, so then where do I turn? And this leads to our final point, pleasure found. Greg Easterbrook wrote a book entitled The Progress Paradox, and its subtitle is How Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. And what he's getting at is as modern day, especially people living in America, we have more of almost everything today. We have more of almost everything materially, experientially. We can travel to all these wonderful exotic places. We have more of almost everything today than previous generations, except for one thing, happiness. And so this is why his book is entitled Life Gets Better While People Feel Worse. In fact, the more we have, the unhappier we are because we, we know we will never be able to get all the new things we want. It's like a stranded sailor surrounded by all this salt water. But the cruel irony is that the more and more you try to drink, the thirstier you will get. And ultimately, it'll poison you. The ultimate thrust, the ultimate intent of the preacher is to tell us from his experience, extensive research, all earthly pleasures, no matter what it is, it's never going to be enough for you. Because it wasn't meant to be. It was never meant to be. In light of the start of the NFL season, I'm reminded of this interview um, by uh, interview with Tom Brady. And this is what he says. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. I think, God. It's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. And this was when he only had three rings. Now he has six and he's starting another season, perhaps pursuing his seventh. Because perhaps in Tom, he's still searching. He's still wondering and still hoping that the seventh will do it. And that could be said of a lot of things. The next drink, the next relationship, the next job, the next vacation, and the list goes on and on, but it's never going to be enough. As St. Augustine said, and as we often quote here at Renewal, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Psalm 1611, David, 
another who experienced all the world has to offer. Solomon's father says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, there is an ultimate place of rest. Home. A return to the garden where we can walk with God. And we don't deserve that. We don't deserve to be there precisely because we chose to chase after and worship and give our lives and energy and devotion to created things rather than the Creator. And so for that reason, we do not deserve to be there. But in His mercy, God took on flesh. And in a garden, Jesus Christ cried out in agony and sweat drops of blood terrified about what he was to face in a few hours, his own crucifixion. And he went through with it because what he was doing in that act was taking the punishment we deserved for rejecting our Creator and serving created things, looking to created things for life. He took that punishment we deserved so that once again, by grace, by by simply trusting in Him and His work, we once again could experience walking with God and experiencing the pleasure we were always meant to experience, the pleasures of God, which fill us up ultimately and last forever. And so, to be clear, let me just add one more thing. All of these things that we mentioned, laughter, alcohol, homes, aesthetic beauty, wealth, accomplishments, sex. These are actually good gifts of God and they're meant to be enjoyed. But when you try to make them more than they're meant to be, you will spoil them and they will spoil you. So let me ask today, as we are in the midst of some crazy times, frustrating times, discouraging and uncertain times, let me ask you, do you find yourself trying to self-medicate, trying to medicate your soul with things that will not ultimately comfort, that will not ultimately heal you? Is your Amazon cart never empty? You're wearing out that keyboard. Are you drinking salt water to quench your soul thirst? Well, if you are, I want to encourage you. Turn away from that and turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Whether for the first time or the thousandth time. Because in Him and Him alone do our restless souls finally find their rest. And in closing, let me close with this thought. Finding soul satisfaction in Jesus is a lot more like eating from a crock pot, a meal prepared in a crock pot, than a meal prepared in a microwave, right? A microwave meal, it's instant. You get it quickly and it may satiate your hunger really fast, right? You put a hot pocket in the microwave, one minute it's done. But soon after, one minute later, you'll probably regret it and feel gross. 
right? But spirituality and finding soul contentment in Jesus is, is not a microwave thing. Perhaps you feel motivated, convicted, challenged, encouraged right now, and, and perhaps you're, tomorrow morning you, you want to get back to, to reading the Bible in and, and, and times of prayer, and that's good, but let me just say, have, have clear expectations of what that's going to be like. It's not like a microwave. Don't be discouraged if you go to open your Bible and you don't feel immediately refreshed, like you're in the third heavens all of a sudden. That's okay. That's okay. It's more like a crock pot. It takes time. And by out of a heart of faith, with a heart that says, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I, I know that my soul can only find its satisfaction in you and therefore I go to you and I will wait for you. And no matter how long that takes, I'm gonna wait on you because only lasting satisfaction is in you. And as you go with that posture, you can trust your soul will begin to taste and feast upon God and be satisfied as with the richest of foods, the choicest of meals, your soul will finally find contentment in Him. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, especially in times like this, where there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of trouble in our world, our temptation is to medicate ourselves to self-medicate, to, to try to find some comfort in our pleasures. But at the end of the day, these things just leave us empty, end up costing a lot of money, and sometimes have very, very destructive consequences. I thank you for your word that points us to the emptiness of earthly pleasure, that many of these things are not wrong in and of themselves. They are actually your good gifts. But when we try to make them what they weren't meant to be, when we try to use them in ways that they weren't meant to be used, we spoil them and we spoil ourselves in the process. Thank you for speaking to us through your word today, calling us gently back to yourself, perhaps for the first time, perhaps for the thousandth time. But either way, the fact remains that our souls will only find their contentment in you. So thanks for calling out to us and grant us the grace to respond to your invitation, your free gift, your free invitation, your gracious call to come as we are. There's nothing we need to do to, to make up for lost time or re-earn your favor or earn your favor the first time. All we need to simply do is turn from our old ways and cry out to you. Cry out to you in faith. And that will ensure that we will find you when we seek you with all of our heart. And then we will find rest for our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.